I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. So I just want to say, first of all, the class is being sponsored by Francie Kustner. And it's a Rafua Shalema for Ilanit Yael Bas Tipor Rifka. She should have a complete Rafua. And also of her Rafua Shalema for Etel Bas Pesya and Shandel Bas Chana. And um, before we begin with our regular class, I just want to talk a little bit about what's been going on in terms of the Jewish world and uh, the tragedy that happened recently in Moron on Lagba Omer, which is supposed to be the happiest day or one of the happiest days in the Jewish calendar. And, um, you know, we're all still feeling the, the fallout from what happened on that day. And um, as a matter of fact, I got a list of Young children, actually, many of them, one as young as 11 years old, who was in critical condition. And uh, the whole Jewish world is dubbing for him and others. And I just want to say their names. May this class be as a host for their refua. Eliezer ben Reuma, he's 21 years old. Yadija Moshe ben Mira Miriam, 13 years old. Avram ben Chana Hinda, 11 years old, literally fighting for his life. Azriel Yosef ben Chaya Michal, and Elkanah ben Yael, who's in critical condition. So there's reason for us to continue to feel for all of the families who are suffering from the 45 people, or as my husband said, one person was killed 45 times to make it a little bit more real for us. Um, it's not 6 million Jews that were killed, but one Jew 6 million times. And um, as we know, that we, the Jewish people, are positively interdependent. When one Jew suffers, all of us suffer. And when one Jew succeeds, we all succeed. And just to talk a little bit about Lagba Omer, because we didn't last week. And um, and I want to share with you a little bit about the special day. First of all, um, who was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? That's where everybody was going, to Moron, to his burial place. Who was this rabbi? So first of all, we have to go back to Rabbi Akiva, who we all have heard about. Rabbi Akiva the famous rabbi, actually a convert from converts, um, who was uh, Moshe Rabbeinu himself, saw that in the future there was going to be somebody even greater than him that not only understood the entire Torah, but understood the crowns on the letters of certain letters of the Torah. And this would be Rabbi Akiva in the future. And Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students that he spent his life teaching. And we know that between the period of the beginning of the Omer count until Lagba Omer, those students were dying every day in a plague. 
And the Gemara tells us that the reason that they died is because they didn't show proper kavod one to the other. And we're not going into that now, but the point is this, that Rabbi Akiva, at the end of this whole plague, was left with five students. Actually, he was left with no students. And he could have just said, I give up. I'm obviously not a good teacher. You know, one of Rabbi Akiva's most famous maxims was that he used to always say and teach that you have to love others the way you love yourself. Right? Something that we get from the Torah, but this was what he was famous for. This was his, you know, primary, if if he could walk around with a slogan on him, that's what it would say. And at the same time, 24,000 students of his, uh, of his died because they didn't show each other proper kavod. So he could have given up. He could have thrown in the te- rag. He could have said, Shem, you obviously don't think I'm doing such a good job. But he started over again, we're told, with five students. And one of these students was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And he became incredibly great to the point that he um, revealed and Uh, understood the Kabbalistic content of the Torah, the internality of the Torah's teachings, what we call Sod, the secrets. And he revealed this to the world on the day of Lagba Omer. That's why we light a fire because Esh HaTorah, right? Torah is always compared to fire. It enlightens and... And so when um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai died on the same day that he died, that was also the day that the world, that, that he revealed the secrets of the Torah, the Kabbalah, the inner workings of the Torah. Um, and the idea that he gave us is that a Jew has to learn to see with internality, not to go by what his eyes see, what the external tells him but to learn how to look deeper and to see from the inside out. And that's what the Torah enables us to do, to look deeper than our physical eyes. And that's why I was on the phone with my son this morning and I said, what can we learn about, you know, what happened in Moron? And he said, what we learn is the way the Jewish people respond to tragedy. You know, other peoples would say, oh my gosh, we've got to fix things. This, you know, They need crowd control over there. There's too many people in one place. Now, I'm not minimizing that. There's, of course, we're, you know, if there are technical things that need to be fixed in order to not allow a tragedy to occur, right? Even though this has not occurred since 110 years ago, they actually had a similar thing happened at Moron 110 years ago, but nothing like this until this year. Okay. There are no coincidences. There's a reason why, for whatever reason, Hashem did not protect them from this happening, but Jews don't say, Oh, we need more uh, guards. We need more this. We need more that. The first thing a Jew says is what does this mean to me? How does this tragedy affect me? How will I be different after this tragedy? What does God want from me? Again, it wasn't my family. I don't know anybody who was killed there. 
But we as Jews, we operate as one organism. If it happened to them, it happened to me. If it was their child, it was my child. If they're sitting and crying, I'm sitting and crying. If they're giving each other chizuk and support and encouragement, I want to hear it too because I need it too. If they're asking themselves, how can I be better? How can we make the world a better place? How can we rectify the sin of this time period, which is that these great people didn't show each other enough kavod? Well, if they didn't show each other enough kavod, how about me? Do I give proper kavod to other people? To people who I don't really agree with, who I don't really like, who don't look like me. You know, one Revison said, it's interesting that they died because there wasn't space. They were trampled, which is a very bestial way to be killed. Human beings don't trample each other. Animals trample each other. But the idea was that there wasn't enough space. And she was saying, isn't that what kavod is all about? Honoring and respecting another person? It's about giving space, about stepping back and saying, it's okay. You're okay. I'm not judging you. You don't have to be me. I honor and respect you because you're a human being that's made in B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. And for that reason alone, I give you space. Anyway, there were a lot of amazing and still are amazing insights and things that we can learn from it. But of course, we're all inspired, whether we're inspired through, you know, joyful things or sad things. There is an inspiration that's going on right now in the Jewish world. And of course, the best thing we can do with our inspiration is to put it into something real. Because as, as I've said in past classes, inspiration comes and goes. Even great miracles like the splitting of the sea doesn't prevent the Jewish people from fetching two weeks later. Even seeing 10 plagues and being set, re, taken out of Egypt doesn't prevent us from questioning, is God really with us? Does he really care about us? I think he hates us, Right? And so we have to put it into something real. So for each one of you and for myself, you know, if we can give a little bit of thought to whether Ben Adam Lechavero, you know, between us and other people, how we can incorporate the idea of giving space, sharing space. One other person I heard was saying, becoming a better listener, you know, really listening when somebody's talking to you not jumping in to fix things, not jumping in to give advice, not getting defensive, but allowing people to really be able to have that moment or what they call shared sharing space. Um, but again, anything, any mitzvah, between other people, between you and Hashem, any mitzvah you already doing that you can do better, you know, even a mitzvah that you do that you say for the next few weeks, this is in the merit of those who died in Meron. You know, I'm going to say this one bracha every day with kavana. I'm going to think about it. Baruch Hashem, 
that everything in this world was created by your word, by your speech, right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. God created the world through speech. How can my use, how can my speech be more elevated in the next few weeks between myself and others? Whether it's holding myself back from saying something that is hurtful or freely giving unconditional compliments and acceptance of those around us. These things make a difference. And again, what we do when we do this in the merit of others who have passed on, we literally have the power to raise their neshamas in the next world to a higher place. Another interesting thing, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, you know, when he first came out of the cave after 12 years and he saw Jews involved in mundane acts, you know, running around, working, uh, plowing, sewing, you know, being plumbers, being lawyers, being doctors, he was confounded. He'd been in this cave learning Torah at the most deepest levels, and he didn't understand how any Jew could be satisfied living a mundane life. And he literally was so holy and so powerful that he literally started burning up everything with his eyes. At which point a bus pull, a voice from heaven came down, the same voice that had told him to come out of the cave and that it was safe to come out because the Romans were after him. The same voice ordered him back into the cave and told him, you need to stay in there until you learn how to put together your spiritual holiness and fire together with the mundane physical world. And the next time he came out, he saw a Jew running home, carrying two branches of myrtle. And he ran over to him and he stopped him and he said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm going home. I'm rushing home for the Shabbat. And he said, what are you carrying in your hands? He said, well, I'm carrying home these sweet smelling spices for the Havdalah that's going to come after Shabbat. And he says, and why do you have two of them? And he says, well, I have one for Shamor and one for Zahor, because in the Torah, it tells us two different ways that we're supposed to keep the Shabbat. We're supposed to Shamor at the Shabbat, guard the Shabbat, the Zahor, remember it all week long as we're going towards it. And Rabbi Akiva was blown away. And he said, Hashem, your people have more mitzvahs in them than a pomegranate has seeds. Now, let's take that and, and listen to this. The word Meron, which is where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai died and where he was buried and where everybody gathers by the thousands. The same letters of the word Meron spell the word Rimon, which is a pomegranate, which Rabbi Akiva compared the Jewish people to. He loved the Jewish people. He saw beneath the body, into the soul of every Jew, and said every Jew is as pregnant with pomegranate seeds, with mitzvot as a pomegranate bursting with seeds. The simplest Jew, the simplest Jew, not the scholar. And then another analogy to this is that on Lagba Omer, the day of Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, is the Sephira Hod Shebahod. Okay, 
which means splendor of splendor. Now, every single week of Spira corresponds to a different um, one of the seven species. It's different one of the seven uh, things that grow in the land of Israel. The week of Hod, when Lagba Omer comes out, is the week of the Rimon, of the pomegranate. It corresponds to the pomegranate. The Ramon is bitter on the outside. The peel is bitter. But we know that if you go in, if you look under it, if you peel off the externality of it, what you find is sweetness and juiciness. And this was the legacy of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And this is still the message that we live with today. The destruction of the temple, which, you know, after Shavuos, we're going to go into the summer. And then, of course, it's going to be Tisha B'Av, the saddest day of the year. But the reason why the temples have not been rebuilt is because Jews have still not loved each other enough, have not been able to go beyond the externalities and see more deeply into the soul of each other, which is all one connected soul, right? And recognize the incredible uh, nature of every single Jew as being so holy and coming from such holiness, all of the ancestors that came before us and what they lived for and what they died for over and over and over again. And anyone who still calls himself a Jew today has that legacy and that the same way that Rabbi Akiva believed that he could start the world over again with five students, and the same way that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught every Jew to not only believe in each other, but to believe in ourselves and realize how much potential we have because we have so much, so much inside of us. Okay, I'm going to move on now um, to our topic that we've been discussing, which still is the topic of Zrizas, of doing things quickly, but not just quickly, doing things with intention, with purpose, recognizing that there are areas in our life that we do those things, we do things that way, but then there are other areas in our life where we are dragged down and where we feel, hmm, I don't really want to do that, or I can't do that, or it doesn't matter if I do that. And that's what we call shiftlet. Okay, so Robinson Dina Schoonmaker says that women tend to struggle with heaviness more than men. Problems bog us down. And every good mita that a person has also has its negative manifestation. So women were given this extra bina. The Torah tells us that women have intuition, right? Even in the non-Jewish world, they say, you know, women's intuition. Well, it's sourced in the Torah. Vayiven chava. And God built chava. And the word vayiven alludes to the wisdom called Bina. There's three types of 
um, wisdoms, Hafma, Bina, and Da'as, which is what actually Chabad stands for, those three types of knowledge. And women excel in Bina, in intuition. But what Rebetzin Dina Schoonmaker points out is our greatest asset is also our greatest detriment because we tend to overanalyze. We tend to get bogged down by our problems because we go over it and over it and over it again. We try to see it from every angle. You know, she gives an example. She said, a kid comes home and complains about a stomach ache, right? So the husband says, okay, make him a gastro appointment. And the woman might say, well, you know, um, no, he's getting a stomach ache because he's being bullied at school. That's why he's getting a stomach ache. You know, so again, a man can perhaps see things in a very, you know, okay, let's see what we've got to do and let's do it. But a woman will look underneath the problem. You know, that's not the real problem. We've got greater internality, right? Which is what Bina is. We were created from the inside. We were created from the rib, right? Something that's inside, something that's hidden, Right? This is the source also for the fact that women have an extra mitzvah when it comes to tzni'ut, tzni'ut, modesty. They have a natural wanting to hide themselves, not wanting to be in the limelight. I mean, we used to, I don't know if we still do, although I know there's psychological studies of young children, like boys and girls playing together in a gun or in a nursery. And they've done studies that show that girls always end up in the corners of the room, you know, playing together. They, they tend to enjoy, you know, the corners more than the boys do. And I was once passing by Bialik actually, because uh, I live very close and, and watching the playground. And I noticed huddled in the corners by the fences were little girls, you know, like having little conversations or doing little imagination games or whatever. And I just thought of that study and I said, aha, you see, they try to change human nature, but we're wired. We're wired in certain ways. Anyway, we come from the inside. So the same thing that usually is a good thing, meaning that we have inferencing abilities. Or in Hebrew, it says, we're able to lehavin davar mitoch davar. We're able to understand one thing from another thing, right? Extrapolate. Um, but sometimes we carry it too far and that's what drags me down. So when, you know, as a mother, as a daughter, as a wife, sometimes my bina can be used against me, by me, okay? Because too much inferencing, too much thinking into things, too much, you know, well, what if I would have said that differently? Or what if I could have changed that by, you know, uh, I don't know, talking to that person? Or I, you know, if only I would have done that, or, it, you know, I should have said this, or all of that stuff that we do, okay? Um, it becomes a heavy weight. And Shiflet is living in our brains and in our hearts. And it creates problems that slow us down. So Zrizut would be to process the problem more externally. And, you know, it's like having a coach. Here I am. You know, having a coach where you talk about what your problem is, and then you figure out the steps that you're going to take to get past it, to get unstuck rather than going over and over and ruminating 
fruitlessly, which we talked about on Tuesday, right? It's like limiting the intake of calories in a food diet. People who think too much should only allow themselves a certain amount of time to ruminate. We said this before, you make an appointment with yourself, right? I have half an hour every day where I could sit down and ruminate and analyze and go over and over and deeper and deeper. And that's it. Okay. And then I have to move forward. So uh, she gives an example of a therapist in New York that she says, people spend a hundred hours thinking about a problem, but how much of it is new and how much of it is just processing over and over and over again. She says 99% is all old information. And the new information is only 1%. So this is what we do in general. We spend too much time circulating old information over and over and over again. The Masilis Yisharim, a book, Musser book, which has different chapters in it and has one chapter on Zrizus, talking about the Mita of Zrizus and its importance in spiritual growth. It says that um, you have to hold on to the mitzvah and don't let go of it until you finish it, right? And this is the concept of um, not getting distracted, following through with something and not getting distracted. The Yetzir Hara has a way of taking us away from our focus, right? We start doing something and then we stop halfway through. So, you know, it's kind of like when you start cleaning out a drawer or you decide you're going to start emptying a closet, but you get so, you, you didn't realize how much time it's going to take. So you just leave everything on, on the, you know, you tell your husband and kids, I'm in the middle of this, don't touch it. You know, it's like before Pesach, especially I'm like, this is the storm before the calm, just everything is staying where it is. Everybody relax, you know, <clears throat> but in general, it's the idea that, you know, that if you have more planning or you know exactly how much time things are going to take, then you're going to be able to tackle it and do it without stopping in the middle. So, you know, it's making a list for some people, you know, the things that I want to get done today, because some people, one of the questions that was asked by Dina Schoonmaker, which is initiating this is some people just get stuck, meaning that, you know, they start watching something on Facebook, or they start doing something that they didn't mean to be so totally absorbed in for so long, part, much part of their day. And they were asking, you know, how do I stop myself from doing these kind of things? from preventing this from happening. So very simply, obviously, if a person does the things that they would least like to do first in their day and check that off, then you don't feel as bad or like you've got this baggage on you because you still didn't get to A, B, or C that you really should have gotten to. And it's the shiftless, right, that creates this momentum of not accomplishing the things that really do need to get done or that thing that really would have been different if you had delivered it earlier than later. Okay. Um,
Okay, the next idea I want to talk about is the idea of the relationship between shiflut, right? Not dragging our feet, feeling down, feeling low, feeling heavy, and fear. So the, the uh, rabbis say that they're partners. So in, in the book, Vasilis Sharim, it quotes a lot from uh, Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. And King Solomon is talking to a lazy person. He's having a conversation. And he says to this person, you know, your rabbis come to town. Why don't you go learn Torah from him? So the lazy person answers, I can't go to my rabbi. I might run into a lion on the way. Now, the idea of this analogy is the lazy man is giving excuses, right? And he doesn't just have one excuse. He has many excuses for why he can't go. He says he's scared of the lion. Then he goes on and he says he's scared that if he goes, the door might be locked. And Shlomo Amelech keeps telling him why this is not so. But basically, at the end of this medrash, at the end of this, um, you know, this teaching from the Torah, uh, it ends by saying, you know what, the guy, the lazy guy says, whether the door is open or locked, I'm really tired and I want to go back to sleep. So excuses and laziness go together, okay? Laziness is the antithesis of zrizus, of being able to get things done. And sometimes we have excuses that are really covering up for this shifla, this low energy, or this, I can't be bothered. Now, in this case, it's interesting that the Medris is saying that this is rooted in fear. I'm afraid of the lion. That's his first response. I'm afraid of the lion. So what would be this modern day fear? Sometimes we say we're afraid, but we really can't be bothered. Okay, and so there's a relationship between fear and laziness. So the modern day example is that the lion is our own insecurities. I don't think I'll be good at this. I don't have anything to wear. It's not so important if I go. Now, I, I think that we're all suffering from this a little bit after having been shut in for a year and a bit. Uh, you know, it's very difficult. We've sort of gotten in this mode of like, oh my gosh, you mean a wedding? You mean I have to get dressed up? You mean I have to like go out there? Like, you know, we've become quite good at hibernating and kind of like wearing what we want, doing what we want every day. And, you know, as I said, you know, uh, what happened in Israel, Dina Schoonmaker noted is that when people were kind of Things were loosening up around Pesach this year, and they were actually in Israel going to be able to have people. People were kind of going, no, I don't think so. I don't know if the vaccine works. I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's safe because people were getting kind of comfortable with the new normal, right? So the point is, is we develop fears also just from not doing and not having done for a while, you know? Um, and many people have become more internal because of the COVID, because of the pandemic, in a good way, in a positive way. We don't need a lot of people around us anymore. We've become more comfortable with ourselves. We started liking ourselves a little bit more, maybe. 
we've realized our own um, friendship and our own companionship is very good enough. I don't need other people necessarily. But the idea here is maybe some of it's rooted in fear. Because low energy and fear are related to each other and fear can breed low energy. So we can talk about the fear of failure, which is the modern day lion on the road, which stops us from maximizing our potential. People who are anxious. And there's an idea of, of something in psychology called an avoidance cycle. People who create an avoidance cycle around them. They started by not doing something and then it becomes bigger. So it starts with a low level discomfort. You know, I don't like flying on planes. I realize it makes me nervous. So then, you know, they decide, no, I don't think I'm going to go on that vacation. And then it becomes, no, I can't fly anywhere. I have a fear of planes. I, I can't go anywhere unless it's by, you know, car, boat or train. Um, and he says, you know, like going to the dentist, right? Even going to the dentist for some people. Um, so what happens is you might have something that you're avoiding. And because you continue to avoid it, it becomes bigger and bigger in your mind. And you create this avoidance cycle until you can't do it anymore. You know, I haven't driven in ages. I'm not such a good driver. When I drive, I'm a little nervous. Now I haven't driven in such a long time because of the COVID, because I never go out of my house. I never see anybody. And you know what? I'm just not going to drive ever again because it's really scary. And who knows what might happen if I drive. So this is the way it happens. And it happens this way in terms of interpersonal relationships too. You have a little spat with somebody or somebody rubs you the wrong way. You decide, you know what? I don't really like that person anymore. I'm just going to avoid them. And, you know, the Torah teaches us, and I've said this in the Hakpada class, the definition of hatred is avoiding somebody out of animosity for three days. But what it means is three different episodes, three different times when you could have had the opportunity to make up with that person or, or build a bridge or, you know, said something nice to just let the whole thing go and you didn't do it. You didn't take that opportunity. So now this little, you know, slight or insult or, you know, I was expecting this from you and you didn't do it. And I never, um, I never uh, said anything about it has become bigger and bigger and bigger. And now you have to avoid this person. You have to run the other way when you see them. You don't want anything to do them. And this is a lot of time how, how family feuds start. Dina Schoonmaker explains. It starts with something really small and it's like a snowball, right? Because you didn't address it then, because you didn't do something about it then or try to, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So avoid, avoided cycles create negativity. You were uncomfortable, then you didn't call them. You used to call them every air of Shabbos. Now you're not doing that anymore. Or you used to meet them in the gym and talk to them. And now I stop, I avoid them. And this is the path to hatred. Avoidance out of animosity. So this cycle of, of avoidance has to be broken because it creates shifla, right? It creates this low place of, oh, I can't do it. I, I want to make, I want to fix things. I want to get this relationship back in my life, but I can't do it because I've spent too much time avoiding 
taking care of the situation. Okay, so that's how, again, shiflet and avoidance, fear are connected to each other. You know, uh, Dina Schoonmaker gave an example. You know, like, like, you know, some people won't go back to a shul because of one person in the shul that, that, that bothers them, that annoys them, that they think doesn't like them, or they have some idea about, or they once insulted them. They said, hey, you're sitting in my seat. Get out of there, right? And, uh, you know, we just, we just d- d- take, so, so then we have this heavy thing to lug around. Or, you know, she gives a different example, which I, I like. She said, my daughter had a friend in her class whose father died. And everybody was going to be Menachem Avil, this friend, but she was afraid to go. She said, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? I'm so nervous. I don't know what to do. So um, her mother, Rebison Schoonmaker, you know, told her, how are you going to feel when you go back to school and you see your friend and everybody went and you didn't go? How are you going to feel? So she got her to understand that she'll feel really badly and it'll be worse. So she went to the Shiva and she came back with a big smile on her face. And she said, basically, the idea was, here's one more thing in your life that you don't have to be scared of, right? You don't have to be scared of making that phone call and asking somebody if they're okay or making that phone call and saying, and just listening to somebody who's had a loss of some kind, right? I used to say, um, I know when I wasn't well and I had a friend who was going through it at the same time, she was really upset by people who didn't call her when she was not well, who she expected they should call her. They should have called her. And this was something she was lugging around and resentful about. Like, you need that when you're already sick, like with a life and death sickness? And I said, honey, why don't you focus on the people who did call you? That's number one. And number two, there's so many people who don't call because they're fearful. Because they don't know what to say. And I used to say about people who called me when I was sick, even if I didn't get the phone and I never talked to them because I couldn't, just knowing that the phone was ringing for me was good enough. But sometimes we stop ourselves from doing something that's even good, that doesn't have anything to do with a conflict, because we're afraid, and it creates shiftless, okay? The best way to create positive energy for ourselves and for our children is to teach them not to create avoidance cycles, not to make something that's a small fear into a huge fear. Because you keep avoiding it over and over and over again until it becomes impossible. Now, sometimes, so there is a connection between Simcha and Zrizos. That when you get something done and you do it and you conquer that fear, you are happy. There's a resolution of doubt, which is one of the definitions of Simcha. Simcha is the resolution of doubt. I didn't think I could do that, and I did it. I did it, and I feel good, and I'm not afraid of it anymore, right? I moved out of my comfort zone, and I didn't create this 
this illusory avoidance thing that became so big. Sometimes in our desire to protect our loved ones, we help them perpetuate their avoidance cycles out of compassion, but we're not doing them a favor because when we break the avoidance cycle, it frees up energy and it also boosts self-esteem. Why does it feel so good to break through limits? This is the way we imitate Hashem. This is one of the ways we who are endowed with a godly soul imitates God. God is unlimited. Now, I am limited. It's true that I am limited. But every additional limitation that we impose upon ourselves makes us more physical and less godlike makes us more um, in touch with ourselves as a body, as a physical entity, and less in touch with ourselves as a soul. When we move beyond our limits, we are experiencing our essence. We are imitating God, so to speak, in moving outside of our limits. So when we have limitations that are physical, like I don't do Israeli coffee, right? You know, (laughs) I don't do buses, you know, I don't do windows, whatever. We say this very proudly, but what we're really saying is I'm very physical. I need this and I need that, right? It's not a compliment to be so incredibly attached to your physical comforts. Listen, we all have them. We grow up with them. We, you know, but be careful when your uh, wants become your needs and you can't live without them because you've made yourself a very physical person and extremely limited. My coffee, my way, my jeans, my way, my this, my way. I can't go there. I can't be in that environment. Listen, I probably wouldn't visit half my daughters-in-law if I expected, you know, or any of my children who have children, you know, what's with this messy house, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's got to be my way or the highway. This makes us very, very limited and physical by overcoming those limitations. We feel more spiritual. I'm bigger. I'm less limited than I thought I was. I'm more like Hashem who is not physical and limited. And when we do things in a speedy fashion, it also is being connected to being more spiritual. Why does less time make something more spiritual? So, of course, when it comes to certain mitzvot, like prayer, we don't think of speed as being a a maila, as being something, you know, good, right? You think of, of davening that the slower, the more kavana the more you're thinking about the words you're saying, right? This is spirituality. This is the spiritual person, not the guy who runs into shul and is able to daven the entire morning, shacharis at 15 minutes and get out to his morning coffee. That's exactly the way he wants it and get to his office in record time. No, we don't think that that person is going anywhere spiritually, right? But there is this dimension of speed that does make us more spiritual. The maharal, says that Hashem is above time. I am bound by time. When I do something in a speedy and efficient way, what I'm doing is I'm trying to overcome the limitation of time. 
again, to be more like Hashem who is above time, who doesn't get dragged down or is, you know, encased in time and can't rise above it, right? We know that time is somewhat of an illusion. We know that when we're enjoying ourselves, when we're doing something that interests us, when we have Zrizos for something, time passes. An hour is like a minute, right? Jacob's love for Rachel was so strong that seven years was like a day that he worked for her. Seemed like a day, right? And yet when something is grueling and we don't enjoy it and we don't like it, time is forever. You know, I was thinking about, you know, my mother and the Torah she taught me, which was really the Torah of positivity. And, you know, when, when we would clean up the kitchen or any of these kind of mundane, boring, roll your eyes tasks as girls in the kitchen with my mother, you know, she was always singing whistle while you work, right? She was singing a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Um, what's the other one that just came to my mind? Um, Oh gosh, the first one I can't remember, but it was the probably the most common one. Um, anyway, when I was, you know, reviewing those songs in my head the other day, I was thinking about, you know, for every job that must be done, there is an element of fun, right? And the task goes more quickly when you are enjoying it. And so Zrizus and speed, that's what it's talking about. That when you're into something, when you're doing it with all of yourself and all of your intention when it's something that you love or even something you don't love, like cleaning the kitchen, right? If you do it with that kind of involvement and excitement, you know, those areas that you don't see that way, you see as drudgery, then it because the time, you, you rise above the time, right? <clears throat> so speed is a way of getting closer to a chef. Now, sometimes speed will be spiritual and sometimes not. Now, the Kutzker Rebbe said, people who do things quickly are either azaris, that's a positive word, right, from the word zriza, or they're a puzzies, meaning they're impetuous and impulsive, okay? They do things very quickly because they're impetuous and impulsive. I'd love to give an example about myself as, an, as a puzzies. I'm having this whole thing with a friend of mine who I gave her a whole bunch of linens and sheets because I saw that she asked if anybody had any on a, on a Toronto grapevine. Anyway, I don't know. I guess I was going away and this and that. And I'm not very good at folding. And I just threw them all into a, a bag and I brought them to her house. And the other day I called her and I said, I can't believe that I did that. I mean... I, I gave it to you like in such a messed up way. She said, well, at least you put it in a bag, right? I mean, we were, we were laughing back and forth. I was saying, you know, but I failed folding in home economics. You know, I wasn't good at folding. And, you know, anyway, the point is this. It just like, I felt like I could have done this, you know, I could have done this in such a nicer way if I had packaged it more nicely, if I had put a note on it, right? We don't always finish things because we're impetuous, we're impulsive. We want to get the deed done, even if it's a good deed, even if it's a mitzvah. There's an idea halakhically that you're not allowed to give a present without it being double wrapped. 
I think is it double wrapped or even single wrapped. It should always be in something, you know, like even gift wrapping comes from the Torah, okay? <laughs> comes from the rabbis. It's not nice. It's not proper. It doesn't show enough care. We all know when we get something, you know, that's packaged and has a little bow and a little note for us and a little kissy thing and whatever else, we feel so special. So another example, the child says, okay, I cleaned my room. I did it in five minutes. Wow. And everything's folded and put away. That's incredible. So that's one type of child. That's the Zaris. The Puzzy's child said, who says he's done it and cleaned his room, all the toys are under the bed and the dirty clothes are under the pillow. Okay. Now this is not Zriza, says the Kotzka Rebbe, right? The Kotzka says in the first case, the kid who cleaned their room in five minutes and everything is beautiful, that's called a Zaris. Because they were energetic. They identified with the task. They wanted to do it well. In the second case, this kid was identifying with resting on the couch and getting it over with. Okay, so he was quick. He was quick, which is the definition in our secular uh, definition of alacrity, to be quick, to be speedy, to be swift. But he did not have this spiritual mita of zrizas. Okay, so again, am I doing this because I want to get this over with? Example, the quick governor. Or am I davening quickly because I'm so in the flow and my speed is showing that I'm identifying so completely with what I'm doing? Because there is opinions. There are rabbis that say davening quickly is, I mean, when it's a true davening, is better than davening slow. Because it's very hard to know and concentrate on what each word means. But davening quickly shows that you're just, the words are just lifting you even though you don't understand every one of them, they're carrying you into a connection with God that you're not even, you, you, you're not even so involved in anymore physically, intellectually. So sometimes speed can be a good thing, but still, in the world of Kavana, speed is not necessarily always a good thing. Slow and intentional is sometimes the right way. So, you know, just to end today, Sreezus is about identifying with what I'm doing and its manifestation. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the lion in our life? Now, lion, again, can be a fear of failure. I don't want to do that because I'm going to fail. It can be the fear that we've created through avoidance by not doing over and over again that thing that makes us uncomfortable and then making it bigger and bigger, whether it's all P relationships with other people that I've let fester and it's become so big and so hard and such a monument that, okay, I'm not talking for you to go and fix those ones up, okay? But don't let, don't make more of them. Don't make more of them. Don't create more toxic monuments inside of you that you schlep around and that zap you of your ability to be light, right? Because that's a zrizus zapper. And lastly, right, a lion can be a fear of rejection. I will look silly 
People won't like what I do. The fear of failure. I won't do this well. A post-traumatic stress symptom that's still with you. I have a previous experience that reminds me of this and I can't do it. Okay. I had a negative experience last time and I can't do it because I'll probably have a negative experience this time. The low self-esteem, which is connected to shiftless, right? The opposite of Zrezus is the fear of my not wanting to put myself out there. And Sarah Hanarakva says the roots of this are perfectionism, that this has its roots again in our need to appear perfect, our need to feel perfect. You know, Abachi Galant, another writer and thinker and teacher in Israel says, perfectionism is not a Jewish idea. We adopted it from the Greeks and the Romans. In our pursuit of perfectionism, we lose out because good enough, which is the new thing, right? Good enough is even a book written by, I can't remember the name, but you know, a lot of people, a lot of psychologists, a lot of speakers talk about being good enough. Okay. It's not an excuse not to continue to grow and develop yourself, but there's also a place where we have to just say, I'm good enough. Look at my, look at what I've accomplished. Pat myself on the back, enjoy and take pleasure in what I've done. And that will give me energy to be able to keep going. She says, why is there so much perfectionism in our society, Sarah Hanna? Perfectionism facilitates shiftlet. It helps us to be, to say, I can't do that. I'm either going to do it 100% or I'm not going to do it at all. Right? Okay, so she gets into why we're so perfectionistic. And, you know, back to what we started with, with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and the mitzvah, Be'ahavtle Recha Kamocha, working to love others more, love ourselves more, because self-love, proper self-love, right? Be'ahavtle Recha Kamocha, you have to love others like you love yourself. Well, let's face it, if we don't love ourselves and we're never good enough, and if we're not perfect, then forget it then there is no way we are not as self-critical as we are. We are going to be critical of others, critical of those closest to us. We're not good enough. You're not good enough either. So the first step is to start loving ourselves unconditionally, giving ourselves condition, unconditional positive. You know, so much of our positive comments are always connected to a deed you know thanks for helping out thanks for clearing the table you got a great mark on your test wow you're amazing it's always connected to something the person did and we grow up with this that we get attention for something good that i did um which is important because that the purpose of that is to be directed teach us what good things there you know that when we do good things in life we should be acknowledged and appreciated, right? That we should, it should keep us doing those things. But there's very, very little bit of, and what needs more of is unconditional positive. Just, you're a great kid. I'm so happy that, you, that, that uh, you're my mother. I'm so happy that you're in my life. Just giving the person positive feedback like this. And a lot of the people who listen on this chat 
for people who had European parents, and my husband had more of a European upbringing than I did, they didn't say I love you, and they didn't say you're great just because, and they weren't very emotive necessarily, and it was a different way of growing up, but in some ways, you know, a lot of homes like this, they didn't get the positive. Now, some people will say my parents didn't have to say anything. I knew they loved me. I felt that, you know, they were proud of me. But most of us, and especially we know in this generation, boy, oh boy, if we don't tell people how great they are every second, right, even if they didn't do anything, but, you know, wink their eye, then, you know, God forbid, they're going to suffer from low self-esteem. Okay, so we've gone a little bit uh, really nutsy on that, but we generally are, are a generation that suffers from very low self-esteem, more so than any other generation before, right? Um, so that's why, you know, there's such this overwhelming outpouring of, you know, rescuing your kid and saving them from any kind of, you know, problem or obstacle that might damage their self-esteem, which they don't have because they were never able to, you know, uh, get up and fall down a few hundred times and bruise their knee, right? The blessing of a, what the blessing of a scraped knee was, is a great, uh, parenting book, the blessing of a, of a scraped knee, whatever, which is against that whole coddling of kids. But anyway, the point is, is, you know, some people never get just because I love you, right? Yet you got into medical school, that was the only reason that somebody said something good to you. Wow, you know, you look great today. Okay. But otherwise, it's it was counterintuitive to, to just say these things in earlier generations. Homes where they were never told, I love you. Okay, I'm going to, uh, so it makes us perfectionistic. I want to end, I know, but I want to just not have to go back to this point. No, I'm going to have to. Okay, all right, we're going to end here. And those are some of the reasons that get the blessing of a skin knee. Thank you, Kim. That's the name of the book, The Blessing of a Skin Knee. It's a great read. It's by a Jewish psychologist who actually, while writing it, became closer to her Judaism as she was writing this book, she talks about that. Um, okay, everybody, thank you. Hope you enjoyed this class. To sponsor a future class, or for a complimentary and completely confidential coaching session with me, as I support you in reaching your goals and actualizing your true potential, please email me at DeborahVale.com yahoo.ca that's devora d-e-v-o-r-a-h veil v-a-l-e at yahoo.ca